When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. We've got three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our loss to Juventus on Wednesday. In part 2, I'll preview our match against Sampdoria on Sunday, and in part 3, I'll talk a little bit about Lille coach Christophe Gaultier, who's been rumored as a possible replacement for Gennaro Gattuso. So let's start with our loss to Juventus. Unfortunately, we lost 2-1 on goals from Cristiano Ronaldo and Paolo Dybala, while our lone goal came from Lorenzo Insigne. This was a really entertaining match for the neutral. The first quarter of the match was wide open, Both sides squandered massive opportunities right from the get-go. By the midway point of the first half, Juve took control of the match, and we really struggled to get a hold of the ball. The second half was very different. We took control and we pressed for the equalizer. Gattuso took a pretty aggressive approach with some unexpected substitutions. Unfortunately, Dybala showed why Juventini have missed him so much, doubling Juve's lead with a brilliantly taken goal. It was always going to be difficult to come back from a two-goal deficit, especially against a staunch defense led by Giorgio Chiellini, with his young apprentice Matthias De Ligt playing alongside him. Much like we defended really well in the first meeting, Juve defended really well in this one, but we did manage to pull one back, which could prove to be a very important goal come the end of the season. That goal came from the penalty spot, it was the only penalty of the match, but it probably should have been the third. We'll cover all of that in this review, and we'll revisit our three keys to the match, but first let's review the starting lineups. 
Andrea Pirlo made three changes compared to our predicted 11 and only two changes in personnel compared to the Torino match, though he also shifted a few players around. The first change was to start Gigi Buffon in goal over Wojtek Szczesny, who had a forgettable performance against Torino. Giorgio Chiellini and Matthias Delic started at center back and Alexandro started again at left back. The Danilo in the midfield experiment came to an end. Pirlo started Danilo at right back and played Adrian Rabiot in the midfield alongside Rodrigo Bentancur. Juan Cuadrado, who typically plays at right back, moved up to the right wing and Dejan Kulusevski started on the bench. Federico Chiesa started in his usual position on the left wing and Alvaro Morata and Cristiano Ronaldo started together up top. For Napoli, Gennaro Gattuso made one change compared to our predicted 11 and five changes compared to the squad he fielded against Crotone. Alex Meret started again in goal with David Ospina continuing to nurse his hand injury. Ospina did suit up though so he appears to be close to a return. Kalidou Koulibaly returns from his suspension to start over Nikola Maksimovic and Amir Rachmani returns from his injury to start over Kostas Manolas. I don't think Rachmani started because Manolas had a poor game against Crotone. I think that had more to do with the fact that we were playing on short rest and Manolas just returned from an ankle injury. I still expect Koulibaly and Manolas to be the starting center back pairing with Rachmani spelling Manolas when we have midweek fixtures. Elcid Hisai started at left back over Mario Rui and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right back. Diego Deme returns from injury to start over Timoy Bakayoko in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Chucky Lozano started over Matteo Politano on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski started in the 10 spot and Dries Merten started over Victor Osman at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match was that we needed to be the aggressor. I'm going to call this one a push. I thought the opening 20 minutes was fairly even and I was really surprised at how open the game was from the opening whistle. Now, I can see why a lot of Napoli fans would say we failed in this regard because we certainly were not the aggressor in the latter part of the first half. Gattuso has been criticized for not having this team show up with a winning mentality. We've looked very timid in some of our matches against top clubs, though not all. I don't think we were timid in the two matches against Milan and Roma. I thought we went after the first victory against Atalanta, but we did not in the second largely due to injuries. And we definitely played scared in the first two meetings against Juventus prior to this one. That said, I think we also need to give Juventus a lot of credit. First of all, they closed us down very quickly and if there's one thing we know about this Napoli squad, it's that we make mistakes and concede possession when we're pressed. This is not the saddy Napoli that could one touch pass our way out of the press and break the other way. Quite frankly, I'm shocked our opponents don't press high on our defenders in every match because it always works. I also felt Juve held their structure quite well defensively and Chiellini and Delict did an excellent job in the middle of the pitch. Finally, in attack, I thought Juve gave our backline fits with their movement. Ronaldo, of course, always has free reign to roam, but we also saw Cuadrado drifting into the middle of the pitch and even popping up on the left side. Likewise, Federico Chiesa often popped up on the right wing, including, of course, on Ronaldo's goal. So that was the first half, but we were certainly the aggressor in the second half, which is a good segue to our second key to the match. The second key to the match was that we needed to press the ball. Now, that key was motivated by the fact that Juve had made some costly mistakes in their matches against Lazio, Benevento, and Torino, all of which led to goals. Now, we didn't press Juve into any costly mistakes in this match, 
but we did press and we did control the run of play in the second half. In short, the first two keys to the match were both pushes because Juve dominated the first half with their press and we dominated the second half with ours. As much as we like to criticize Gattuso's tactics, I do think we need to give him credit for the substitutions he made in the 54th minute. I thought both the timing and the personnel involved in those changes were unexpected. He replaced Lozano with Matteo Politano. I know we all love Lozano, but I didn't have an issue with that change. Lozano wasn't exactly a standout performer in the first half. Granted, he didn't get much service, which I guess you could put on Gattuso, but I didn't mind the change in the look of the attack. Also, with Osiman coming on at the same time, I don't think you get as much out of Lozano because his biggest asset is his pace which is also a quality that Osman possesses. Now, we all expected Osman to replace Mertens, but instead, Gattuso removed Diego Deme, dropped Zielinski into the double pivot, and dropped Mertens into the 10 spot. So that was a very aggressive approach, which tells you that Gattuso was going after that result. With that 11, we essentially attacked in a 4-1-4-1, and we ultimately got a very important goal, which I'll come back to in just a bit. Osman did look excellent off the bench. He did a great job of holding up the ball and drawing fouls from Kilini and Delict, which is something that was missing in the first half. He also provided an aerial threat in the area, which was also missing in the first half, and for me, might be the primary reason why we need to start seeing Osman start. We played a few crosses in the first half, and with a front three of Insigne, Lozano, and Mertens, there's just no height there. Osman's touch was on as well. He controlled a couple of passes that were blasted towards him, including one in the dying minutes where Delict made a massive block. The shot was definitely going to hit the target. That was a really cool battle between two of Serie's brightest young talents. Finally, Osman, of course, won the penalty. Now, does that play mean that Osman should have started? Perhaps, but I have no issues with Merton starting either. I spoke to Rafa Rispo about this on the latest episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide. I agree with Rafa that it makes sense to go with the experienced player in this situation. Mertens had been in fine form heading into this match with back-to-back goals from free kicks, and most people wanted Osman to start in those matches as well. My reservation about starting Mertens was the fact that he was on short rest, but I also added that Osman was bullied by Chiellini and Delict in our previous meeting. After that match, we were all saying that Osman needs to hit the weights in the offseason and build some strength. And when I was on Rafa's show called The Rant, we talked about how useful Osman is as a weapon off the bench playing against tired legs. Perhaps that's why he had so much success in this match. We don't know that had he played from the start that he would have dominated for the full 90 minutes. He still got a solid 40 minutes in, so I don't have any issue with how Gattuso played that. Our final key to the match was to use our pace on the right wing. I'm going to say we failed in this regard. We played the occasional long ball to Lozano on the right side, but not frequently enough in my opinion. The best play he made was in the opening minutes of the match when Di Lorenzo played a ball over the top to Lozano. The Mexican ran onto it and put the ball on a platter for Zielinski, but Zilo skied the shot over the bar. Other than that, we barely used him. I recall one other pass intended for Lozano, but Danilo intercepted it. So we pushed on two of our keys and we failed on the other one, which is consistent with a 2-1 loss. There were three other points that I think need to be addressed. I'll start with Elsid Hisai, who had an absolutely dreadful match. Now, I completely understand why Gattuso selected him. He really has to pick his poison when it comes to left back. Hisai made the most sense, though. He was the more rested of the two left backs, having sat through the entire match against Crotone. He also played quite well in his previous two matches against Milan and Roma, no less. 
and from what I saw, he also played really well during the international break. Now, I don't think Gattuso was expecting Pirlo to play Cuadrado as a right winger, and between the pace of Cuadrado and Chiesa, who I mentioned were swapping positions quite a bit, Hisai really struggled. He got turned inside out on the Ronaldo goal, though that wasn't entirely on Hisai. Koulibaly and Rachmani both lost Ronaldo for a second time in the opening 13 minutes, and you simply cannot give Ronaldo two open looks. Hisai also got beat to the ball in the build-up to the Dybala goal, though again, that goal was not entirely on Hisai. On that one, you just have to tip your hat to Dybala for scoring a goal like that in his first appearance since January. It's funny, quite a few Napoli fans actually predicted that Dybala would punish us. I will criticize Gattuso for not taking Hisai out at the half though. We've seen him do that with defenders in the past, like with Rachmani against Udinese, and Hisai was clearly struggling in the first half. Mario Rui is quicker than Hisai, so I think Gattuso waited a bit too long to make that change. Moving on, I think we have to comment on the performance of match official Maurizio Mariani. Let me say up front that if it were up to me, I would have every match called like this one. The game has become so ticky-tacky, every game seems to have a penalty nowadays, which I think is a way of inflating goal totals. That said, the way he called this match was not consistent with how most Serie A matches are officiated. I think he missed penalties for both teams, first for Lozano's foul on Chiesa, and then for Danilo's foul on Zielinski, both of which occurred in the first half. A lot of people were claiming that the foul by Lozano was not a penalty because it was committed outside of the field of play. For those who don't follow my Twitter account, I looked up the official rule on this, which was a mission in and of itself trying to find the official rules on the Legacetia website, but I did find it and I posted a short thread on what the rules say. As it turns out, if a foul is committed outside of the field of play, a free kick is awarded at the closest point on the pitch where the foul occurred. And, if that point is within the area, a penalty is awarded. So, if there was a foul there, regardless of whether Keza's foot was on or off the line, that should have been a penalty. Now, you could question whether Lozano actually committed a foul. It did appear like he pulled his leg back at the last second, but I still think he caught Keza. Now, I generally think that two wrongs don't make a right, but I do think the non-call on Danilo's foul on Zielinski leveled the playing field. Mariani also missed a couple of fouls during the match as well. First, there was a late foul by Chiesa on Politano and then Politano's reaction, which I think he was very, very fortunate to get away with. And then there was a foul by Cuadrado on Insignia at the edge of the area that wasn't given either. So all in all, this was a poor performance from Mariani. I'll close on a positive note. I mentioned that Insignia's goal from the spot could prove to be a very important one. The reason for that is because of how the tiebreak rules work. At the moment, Juve are 3 points clear of us in the table, but with 9 matches to play, it wouldn't be unheard of for us to finish the season level on points. If we do, the first tiebreak is head-to-head -head goal differential. We beat Juve 1-0 in the first meeting, and of course they beat us 2-1 in this match, so the aggregate score is 2-2. There's a bit of a misconception that the next tiebreak is head-to-head -head away goals, like in a European tie, that is not the case. The second tiebreak is actually overall goal differential in the league. Juve have a slightly better goal differential at the moment. They are plus 32 while we are plus 29, but again with 9 matches to play, that could change as well. The third tiebreak is overall goals 4 in the league. We currently have the advantage there, with 8 more goals than Juventus have. And then the final tiebreak is a random draw, so we really hope it doesn't come down to that. 
Based on those rules, we already own the tiebreak over Atalanta with an aggregate score of 6-5. We also own the tiebreak over Roma with an aggregate score of 6-0, though Roma appear to be dropping out of the race. They are likely going to focus their resources on winning the Europa League. Milan have the tiebreak over us with an aggregate score of 2-3, and we have yet to play our return fixtures against Inter and Lazio. Inter beat us 1-0 in the first meeting, but we're not going to catch them anyway, so a tiebreak doesn't really matter there. And Lazio beat us 2-0, so that will be a massive match as well. If Lazio beat Torino in their game in hand, Lazio would only be one point behind us in the table. Given all of that, a top 4 position is very much within our reach, despite our loss to Juve, which I think is why we took this loss so well. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll preview our match against Sampdoria on Sunday. In part 2, I'll quickly preview our match on Sunday against Sampdoria. This will be the 107th meeting between these two clubs, and the 54th to be played at the Marassi. In the previous 53, Napoli won 15, Sampdoria won 21, and 17 resulted in draws. We've dominated this fixture over the last decade. Other than a 3-0 win in 2018, Sampdoria have failed to record a victory over us in 18 matches dating back to 2010. We have 15 wins and 3 draws in those 18 matches. However, past results have no predictive value. Sampdoria certainly have the capacity to beat any team in the league. They're coming off a draw to Milan in a match where I felt Sampdoria were the better side. They've also managed victories over Atalanta, Lazio, Hellas Verona, and Inter this season. As a result, Sampdoria currently sit comfortably in 10th in the table, which is where they've hovered all season. That's largely because of Claudio Ranieri, who's done a masterful job when you consider the limited options he has available in this squad. Sampdoria owner Massimo Ferrero certainly appreciates his manager. In an interview this week with Radio Kiss Kiss, he said Ranieri is his coach and he has not made any contact with anyone else. Ferrero echoed that sentiment for his Napolitan striker Fabio Cagliarella, saying I ask him if he's good and he always tells me yes. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Ranieri has used different formations this season, but lately it's been the 4-4-2 or some variation of it, like the 4-4-1-1 or the 4-3-1-2. Emil Audero will start in goal. Omar Colli and former Napoli player Lorenzo Tonelli are the preferred options at centre-back. Tommaso Augello is the preferred option at left-back and Bartosz Berzinski is the preferred option at right-back. Albin Ekdal missed the Milan game with a muscle injury and his replacement, Adrian Silva, picked up two yellows in that Milan match. So either Christopher Askelson or Valerio Veda will start in the double pivot alongside Morten Thorsby. Veda is more of an attacking midfielder and Askelson filled the void left by Silva against Milan, so I'll take Askelson to start. Ranieri seems to rotate between Mikel Damsgaard, Antonio Candreva, and Jakob Yankto on the wings. 
I'll assume that Damsgaard and Kandreva start again as they were quite effective against Milan. Finally, we should see a pair of former Napoli players start up top in Fabio Cagliarella and Manolo Gabbiadini. For Napoli, Gattuso will line up in his usual 4-2-3-1 formation. I think Alex Meret will remain in goal and perhaps David Ospina returns for the Inter match. As I said in part 1, I think Kostas Manolas will return to start at center back alongside Kaladu Koulibaly. Similarly, I think Mario Rui will return to start at left back, with Giovanni Di Lorenzo starting again at right back. Since Diego Deme was pulled early in the Juve match, I think we'll see him start in the double pivot alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne will start again on the left wing. I'm going to say that Chucky Lozano starts again on the right wing. Like Deme, he was pulled pretty early from that Juve game, so I think he'll still be fresh. That said, I get the impression that Gattuso doesn't want to play with both Osiman and Lozano together because they both offer the same kind of threat. I do expect Victor Osiman to start as Dries Mertens could use a rest, so I wouldn't be shocked if Matteo Politano started on the right wing. Finally, I think we'll see a rested Piotr Zielinski in the 10 spot. So those are our starting lineups, next let's get to our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is we cannot let Sampdoria shoot. Between Gabbiadini and Cagliarella, and even Yankto, Damsgaard, and Kitabalde off the bench, Sampdoria have some absolutely lethal finishers. I mentioned Cagliarella's goal scoring record, he doesn't just score against us, he also does it in style. He scored some ridiculous golazos against us in the past few years, so the best way to stop him is to limit his shots. Mind you, there's not a whole lot you can do to prevent a backheel volley. Our second key to the match is one that we've used many times this season, which is we cannot gift chances to Sampdoria. This one is somewhat related to the first because if you give Sampdoria chances on a plate, they will take them. We saw Cagliarella do that to Milan last weekend. Morten Thorsby nearly scored against Bologna after they conceded possession at the edge of their own area, but he hit the upright, so you definitely don't want to gift chances to this team. Our final key to the match is to watch out for the runs of Sampdoria's fullbacks. Just like ours, Sampdoria's fullbacks tend to get forward quite a bit. Augello is particularly dangerous on the left side. That's another argument for starting Lozano because he definitely has the pace to get back and he's shown all season that he's quite a good defender. He's certainly a better defender than Matteo Politano. Insigne always gets back on the right side. You definitely cannot accuse our captain of not helping at the back. He'll need to keep an eye on Berezinski, who scored his first goal in Serie A just a few weeks back with a late run to the back post. That also means we need our fullbacks to be careful not to get caught in the attack. We've seen that happen a few times with Di Lorenzo this season, and he's on the same side as Augello. The head official for this match is Paolo Valeri. He's officiated 23 Napoli matches dating back to 2008. Napoli have a record of 14 wins, 5 draws, and 4 losses in those matches. However, we haven't fared well in matches with Valeri lately. We haven't won in the last 3 with him in charge, which were the 2-0 loss to Inter last season, the 3-1 loss to Milan earlier this season, and the 1-1 draw to Torino, which was also earlier this season. Valeri's assistants for this match are Salvatore Longo and Domenico Rocca, Federico Dionisi is the fourth official, and Gianluca Arellano is on the VAR assisted by Alberto Tegoni. 
For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-1 Napoli win. I'll give the Napoli goals to Lorenzo Insigne and Chucky Lozano, and for Sampdoria, I'll give the goal to Fabio Quagliarella. Sampdoria have only been shut out six times this season, and as I said, Quagliarella has a great record against us. He scored eight goals against Napoli in his career, and four of those goals were for Sampdoria. He's actually scored one goal against us in each of the last six campaigns, so that streak is on the line. Had we beaten Juventus, I would have been concerned that this might be a trap game with Inter coming up next, but because we lost to Juve, I think the team will be eager to get back to winning. This is definitely not the weekend you want to drop points. When you look at the schedule this round, the other six teams in the top seven should win their matches. The only team that will be in tough is Lazio, who have a tough match against Hellas Verona, and they will be without Manuel Lazzari and Joaquin Correa, who are suspended, and Simone Inzaghi, who has COVID. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll talk a little bit about Lille manager Christophe Galtier. part I'll talk a little bit about Lille's manager Christophe Galtier. For those who don't know Galtier is one of the many managers who's been linked to Napoli. I knew very little about him so I looked into him a little bit and I figured I might as well share that with all of you. I got this idea from the latest episode of the Football Today podcast which is all about Lille so you will see a lot of similarities between this segment and that episode. As with all of the managers we're linked to there are pros and cons with hiring someone like Galtier. I'll do my best to present the facts and then hopefully that'll help you to make an informed judgment on him. So let's start with Galtier's experience. Other than a few brief stints as an assistant manager for Addis Saloniki in the Greek League, Al Ain FC in the UAE, and Portsmouth in England, Galtier has spent his entire career coaching in France. He joined Saint-Étienne as an assistant manager in November 2008 and was promoted to manager a year later. In his first full season in charge, Saint-Étienne finished in 17th, which obviously isn't very good. Saint-Étienne jumped to 10th the following season, and in the six seasons after that, they finished no worse than 8th. In the 2013-14 campaign, Galtier led Saint-Étienne to 4th in Ligue 1. Galtier spent 8 seasons at Saint-Étienne before joining Lille and achieved an average league position of 7th, and that includes that first season in 17th place. If you remove that season, Saint-Étienne's average ranking was 5th over his last 7 seasons there. 
In the 2012-13 campaign, Saint-Étienne won the Coupe de la Ligue and Galtier earned the title of Ligue 1 Manager of the Year, tied with Carlo Ancelotti. Now, Saint-Étienne did finish in 4th place this season after Galtier left, but then took a dramatic decline after that. Last season, they dropped back down to 17th place, and this season they are in 15th place with 7 matches to play. That number 17 is a curious one for Galtier. That's where Lille finished in his first season with them, though it wasn't a full season. Lille were in the relegation zone when Galtier replaced Marcelo Bielsa just before the end of the year, so I suppose survival was the objective and he achieved that, beating Dijon 2-1 on the penultimate match day of the season. That was an important win because the final match of that season was against his former club Saint-Étienne, who thrashed Lille 5-0. Galtier quickly turned things around at Lille, finishing second in his first full season in charge and bringing Lille back to the Champions League after a five-year absence. Galtier followed that up with a fourth-place finish last season, and this year, after a massive win over PSG on matchday 31, Lille were sitting three points clear of PSG and four points clear of Monaco at the top of the league on table. Lille owned the tiebreak over PSG after a nil-nil draw in the first meeting, I'm recording this on Saturday and Lille already defeated Mets on Friday, so they are 8 matches away from their first league on title in a decade. Now, aside from the fact that Lille were on the verge of relegation when Galtier took over, this run of success is even more impressive when you consider the chaos Galtier has endured at the club. Adam White and Eric Devine wrote an excellent article for The Guardian on this chaos. White and Devine started from the present and worked their way back. I will do the reverse. Gerard Lopez purchased the club in 2017, two years after selling his Lotus Formula 1 racing team to Renault. Lopez took out 225 million euros in loans from JP Morgan and Elliott Management Corporation to fund the acquisition, and as a result, the club has been forced to sell its top players season after season. In the summer of 2018, Lille sold midfielder Yves Bissouma to Brighton, left-back Ibrahim Amadou to Sevilla, and right-back Kevin Malqui to Napoli. That winter, Lille also sold left-back Bole Falotoure to Monaco, but the big changes came in the following two seasons. As we know all too well, in 2019, Arsenal pulled the rug out from under our feet, purchasing Nicolas Pepe from Lille for 80 million euros. Pepe was Lille's top scorer in back-to-back seasons with 14 and 23 goals respectively. Lille also sold Rafael Leao to Milan for nearly 30 million, midfielder Thiago Mendes to Lyon for 22 million, and winger Anwar Al-Ghazi to Aston Villa for 9 million. Then in 2020, they sold Victor Osimhen to us for 70 million euros after he led the team with 18 goals. They also sold defender Gabriel to Arsenal for 26 million. However, even with those sales, Lille still owed 123 million euros due and payable in August of 2021. That certainly wasn't helped by Liga prematurely cancelling its season, which in my opinion was the right thing to do, but it did not help French clubs with their finances. Then the LFP made an absolute mess managing local TV rights in Liga, which will cost French football about 600 million euros a year at a time when just about the only source of income for these clubs is TV revenue. As a result, Lopez was forced to sell the club. In December, Lopez accepted an offer from Callisto Sporting, a subsidiary of Merlin Partners. Callisto immediately installed Olivier Leitang as the new club president. The former PSG Sporting Director and Ren President replaced Mark Ingla, who was in the role prior to the sale. Despite all of the off-the-field distractions, Galtier has continued to deliver the results. Now, as deserving as he's been, 
Galtier has had an important partner by the name of Luis Campos. Campos's role is probably best described as a third-party sporting director. He's not an employee of the club. Rather, he's employed by a subsidiary of the company that owns Lille. Campos is a master of talent identification and is largely credited with bringing in all these young players who Lille have sold at large multiples. And he's done this on a consistent basis. He sold Benjamin Pavard and Jabril Sidibe and replaced them with Kevin Malqui. Then he sold Malqui and replaced him with Zeki Selik. He sold Suelijo Miete and replaced him with Thiago Mendes. That same season, he signed Jonathan Bamba, Jose Font, and Rafael Leao on free transfers. He also signed Jonathan Ikone, who's emerged as a key player this season with seven goals, which allowed Lille to offload Nicolas Pepe. Two summers ago, he replaced Rafael Leal with Victor Osimhen and Thiago Mendes with Benjamin Andre. He also added Renato Sanchez, Yusuf Yasici, and Timothy Weah. Then last summer, he replaced Victor Osimhen with Jonathan David and replaced Gabriel with Sven Botman. He also signed Barak Yilmaz on a free transfer, and Yilmaz and David lead the team in scoring with 10 goals each in Ligue 1. So Campos has certainly brought in the talent that not only made money for the club, but also fit into the system and style of play that Galtier plays, so let's talk about that next. For this part, I'm drawing directly from that Football Today episode because they did an excellent job breaking it down. Lille are one of the best defensive sides in all of Europe, they don't concede a lot of goals, they don't give opponents much space, and they play very compact. They have 18 clean sheets through 32 matches, and they've only conceded 19 goals in the league, which only PSG have come close to. PSG have conceded 22 goals, and the next best team is Lyon, who have conceded 31. That's not new for Galtier's teams. During his eight seasons at Saint-Étienne, he conceded only 39 goals per season on average. On Football Today, they compared Lille's style to Atletico Madrid's, and we know under Diego Simeone that Atleti like to defend and counter. Lille are quick on the transition, and they have those weapons that Campos has brought in that when given the opportunity, they are lethal in front of the goal. Galtier plays in a realistic, controlled manner. If one fullback pushes up, the other hangs back. It's a very balanced team that likes to play in a mid-block, so they don't press too high, but they also don't drop too far back. They wait for the right opportunities, and then they press. As far as tactics go, Galtier used the 4-4-2, 4-3-3, and 4-2-3-1 at Saint-Étienne. With Lille, he started with a 4-2-3-1 and has now shifted to a 4-4-2. So that's all very positive, but does that mean that he's the right person for Napoli? I'll start with the reasons why it may not make sense, and then I'll close with the reasons why it does. First, he spent his entire managerial career in France. That doesn't necessarily mean he can't do well in Italy, but there's obviously some risk there. It's a new country, a new language, and a different style of football than what he's accustomed to. As I mentioned, Galtier spent eight seasons with Saint-Étienne and is now in his fourth season with Lille, which suggests that he is loyal to his club. That also suggests that he may not be willing to leave, and he's certainly not going to be fired. Another negative is that Luis Campos would not likely be joining Galtier at Napoli. If he was, I'd say make that move immediately. Now, I'm not as critical of Cristiano Giuntoli as some people are, but if Galtier joins without Campos, he wouldn't have the same young talents coming in. Finally, Galtier plays a very defensive brand of football. Now, that's not a negative in and of itself, but I know a lot of Napoli fans want to see attacking football. I think perhaps we were spoiled with how well we played under Sadi, and some people optimistically want to see that return. I personally have no issues with defensive football at all. 
Like I said, Gautier's style is more like Simeone's, and most importantly, it's not like Gattuso's. I've defended Gattuso for a while, but I admit when he plays defensive football, there doesn't appear to be a plan. It seems like we're playing for nil-nil draws. That is not what Gautier and Simeone do. Those managers have a clear plan, a clear approach on how they intend to score goals. So in a way, Gautier's style, though defensive, is still a positive, at least in the sense that it's a clear improvement over Gattuso in terms of tactics. A few other positives. First, Gautier coached Victor Osman at Lille, so obviously there is already a relationship there. And second, in his 12 years in France, Gautier has used the same three formations that we've played with over the last decade, so we already have players that suit his system. We would only need to augment the squad to fit with that defensive style. So that's where I'll leave it. Hopefully that helps to inform whether you want Christophe Galtier to be the next manager of Napoli. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back next week with another bonus episode that I think you're going to like. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.